welcome to Luxury On Air, where we explore the trends, innovations, and personalities defining and redefining the luxury industry. Welcome to Luxury On Air. My name is Karin Segedi, and I am your host today of our 11th episode. We are delighted to have Ben Clymer and Thomas Bayot today for an episode about trailblazers in the watch industry. These two gentlemen are disruptors in their own right pushing the envelope when it comes to distribution and design. Ben Clymer is the founder and executive chairman of Hodiki, the luxury watch content leader and destination for all watch lovers, based in New York. The company was founded in 2008, and 14 years later, Hodinki has already reached $100 million in sales. In February of the same year, Hodinki acquired pre-owned luxury watch site Crown & Caliber. Thomas Bayou, founder and CEO of BA111 OD Watch Concept Company, which came about in 2019. After only a few years in existence, it has achieved 3 million Swiss francs in sales. BA111 OD is testing new ways of retailing using afflanders and tightly priced watch pieces. Thank you for joining, Ben and Thomas. Pleasure to be here. So maybe before we deep dive into our topic for today. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself and explain where your passion for watches comes from? Ben, do you want to start? Sure, I, I would be happy. I'm, I'm so happy to be here with, with you, Tomas, and uh, and you guys from, from Deloitte. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure. Um, so my my history is I was uh, a nerd growing up, uh, you know, very quiet and interested in in uh, technology and computers. And the watch, in some way, is is kind of like the, the ultimate piece of technology. And my my maternal grandfather, who was my hero, gave me an Omega Speedmaster right off of his wrist when I was 16 years old. And at the time, I didn't really understand what it was, but that became you know my my obsession, my fascination was was him and, and that watch. And then as I grew up, um, you know, over the next eight or nine years, I graduated from university and ended up going into project management consulting, working for a company I'm sure many of you know well called UBS, uh, based out of uh, Switzerland. And um, it was at that time that I decided, this was in 2008 during the first financial crisis of, of my lifetime, um, I decided that I didn't want to work in finance anymore. So I started researching my grandfather's watch and then writing about it. Um, and then ended up writing about watches for GQ, for the Financial Times, for Forbes, for you know places like that uh, here in the U.S. Um, and then ended up going back to journalism school to become a, a full-time journalist. And at, at, at journalism school, I was approached by several professors that were curious about what Hodinkee was. Uh, and then when I graduated from journalism school, I realized that I already had a job and it was a fun one. And I was writing about watches for a living. Uh, and that was 10 years ago. Uh, and, you know, 180 employees ago and, uh, you know, quite, quite a few watches ago. Um, and so now, you know, we are a, a much larger company. Uh, we support an authorized dealer for 40 brands ranging from Apple Watch to Omega and everything in between. We're a full content studio. Uh, we do magazines and podcasts. So we, we like to be, you know, kind of the, the one-stop shop for, for all lovers of watches ranging from, as I said, smart watches to, to the finest watches in the world. It all started with your grandfather. It did. It did. Yeah. It did. And Thomas, was it a family affair as well in your, on your side? As well. We're very glad to share the, this podcast with Ben and thanks, uh, Karin, for inviting me. Um, well, it was a family affair in the fact that uh, I was born where my parents were and I was born in La Chaux-de-Fonds. So uh, La Chaux-de-Fonds is in the middle of the heart, uh, in the heart of the Watch Valley. And as I said, uh, always, I was born in a watch. When you're born in La Chaux-de-Fonds, you have 50% 
probability to work directly for the watch industry and 50% to work indirectly for the watch industry. So basically <laughs> you have to be there. My father being a journalist, he was head of the newspaper. We had always for lunch, Hayek, Van Vaart, Bloom, all the actors of the watch industry, the one that were doing uh, and, 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 and growing that, uh, that industry. And I was always hearing when I was a kid, speaking not just about the industry and the watches, but what's behind that industry. I mean, you hear it from the kitchen what's really happening in the industry. And, and that was a, a, a passion for me since always. And then when I grew up, uh, I studied in the press, which was a very interesting experience because I could feel the first hit of the digital disruption in the press that came, that came later than in the marketing and in the watch industry. And then about 18 years ago, I started uh, in the watch industry itself. It's, it, even if you're from La Chaux-de-Fonds, it's very difficult industry to enter. It's very closed here. But still, I could start as an area manager uh, for Switzerland first. So I was visiting point of sales. I did my school from the very beginning, uh, visiting point of sales in Switzerland. And I went on to international sales. And I spent 15 years in airplanes, waking up one day in Bogota, the other day in uh, Cape Town, and the last day in Jakarta. So I did this. And for 15 years, I built distribution network around the world executing more or less every type of sales you could think of uh, when it comes to watch distribution, being direct distribution, traditional one, or subsidiaries, or liquidation, or whatever you can think of. So I became a watch expert and a distribution expert, and that's a passion that accompanies me since the, the very beginning. Five years ago, I became independent, and this is where another experience started with, uh, with now the, the launch of my watch brand. Um, I would say it was um, a surprise to me. I didn't plan to launch a brand. I just meant to make an experiment and it ended up with the brand. So let's say I'm happy with it, but it wasn't the plan at the beginning. So listening to both of you, it seems like uh, you fell into the watch industry and your current job became an evidence after what you had done uh, as a side uh, occupation initially. Yeah? Um, I mean, I mean, Ben, 2008, it was only a watch blog, huh? a Hodinkee. Yes. And now yeah. it's a multi-million dollar e-commerce and media empire. Did you think that it would come there only by writing a blog of things that are passionate, about, where you are passionate about? No, I mean, I think, you know, I, I often make a joke to my current very supportive investors that we didn't have a business plan then, we don't have a business plan now, um, which is a joke, kind of. Um, but I think, uh, you know, Hodinkee and, and, and I think, you know, Thomas's business as well. I think the be the best businesses are born out of passion. You know, I think if you if we could go back in time and interview with Steve Jobs in 1983, there'd be no doubt about his passion for the personal computer. And I think you know th there are many people in in watches and, and other categories that that have jobs at great companies. And I think you know one of the most disillusioning experiences I ever had was meeting authorized dealers of the greatest brands in the world, the Rolexes, the Pateks, the APs, et cetera, et cetera, early on in my career. And I would say, oh, what was it like selling the 2499 in, in 1973 or so-and-so for tech? And they'd say, which one's that again? And I'd say, wait a minute, like you, got, you guys are the brands that have been blessed by the Stern family or whoever to sell the most amazing products in the world. And, um, and you don't even remember, you know, arguably the most iconic reference. And I realized that there was a really big disconnect between people that cared about watches and the people that were involved in watches. And I think the reason that Houdinki worked, and I think so many other smaller companies, which I still view Houdinki as, and, and you know, that, you know, several brands that continue to work 
are those that, that are based on whether it's one founder or one team or one group of people's passion for this product. So no, I mean, there, there was no business plan then to sell anything. It just made sense. And I think, you know, going to journalism school in New York in, in the late early 2000s, 2010s was one of the best things I did because I saw the writing on the wall with media. And it's amazing that Thomas was involved with media as well. And it's, it, you know, as, as was I. And I think you, you really learn so much about the world being a journalist. And I learned very quickly that my colleagues and classmates at, at Columbia, where I went to school, uh, that were trying to get jobs in media at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, had no luck. And these were the smartest people, I thought, in the world, you know, young, smartest young people. And I said, media is dead. Media is over, you know, and at least in, in the U.S. And I said, you know what, this just doesn't make any sense. Like we have an amazing audience that is willing to spend money on things none of us need, right? I'm the first person to say nobody needs a watch. Um, and, and nobody will spend money on marketing, et cetera. And so I said, man, we should, we should design our own stuff and sell it. And so in 2012, we started selling our first products, which were straps that we designed in Italy and then sold on a Shopify account. And that was kind of our first big break. So, I mean, it, it's all been organic. It's, it's completely been organic. And I think part of the success in Houdinki is that, um, you know, the conservatism, the inherent conservatism of this industry has allowed people that are forward thinking and somewhat thoughtful in their approach to, to succeed. Uh, and I think, um, you know, I think that remains true today. And I, I don't think we're reinventing the wheel in any way. I think we have a good touch, of course, but I think um, I think a lot of it was was the right place, the right time. But does it mean as well that your clients are, uh, are only watch lovers and that they come to you because they are disappointed by the other or maybe store assistants no. not knowing enough enough? Or is it globally no. I mean, if they feel the it, passion? It's, It's totally different. I think it took I think it took a long time for my my friends that are retailers to understand that. And I think, you know, we we have created what what I'm most proud of is bringing new people into watches. We're not stealing clients away from Tourneau or Booker or anybody like that. Like it's totally different. In most cases, people that read Hodinkee don't know those stores exist at all. And frankly, I think a lot of people that shop at Toronto and Booker don't know Hodinkee exists at all. They're totally different worlds. Our audience is young, it's digital, it's dynamic. It's digital almost exclusive, almost, you know, with, with some exceptions. Uh, and then there are people that will, you know, that buy the million dollar watches up at, at our friends at Wempy or, or on Fifth Avenue here in New York. And it's a totally different mindset. And both can exist simultaneously and both, both can support. So the, this Houdinki has never been about, you know, kind of taking clients away from existing retailers or authorized dealers. It's about bringing new people into the space. And I think we do that better than anyone because we create content that shows that it's cool to be into watches. And Eight years ago, we shot a video with the rock star, John Mayer. And that video, which has been seen, I think, like six or seven million times now, continues to get people excited about watches. And we've done that with Jack Nicklaus, the great golfer. We've done them with great collectors in Switzerland. We've done it with uh, Ed Sheeran recently on, on a podcast with me. And what we try to do is get people excited about this category in a way that they never were before. So it's not about appealing to watch collectors, although we certainly do that. It's more about getting entire an entirely new group of people excited about watches to begin with. Yeah, and, and, and the stars are appealing indeed. Huh? Uh, look, looking you up, Sharon is everywhere with you yes. <laughs> on YouTube yes. currently. Absolutely. Um, Thomas, you as well. I mean, you, and you, you said you were in the more traditional retailing before for watchmakers, and then you, you, you come from, the, from La Chaux-de-Fonds, which is, of course, the, the, the um, place to be when you're a watchmaker. Um, in the end, I mean, you created uh, BA 111OD because you wanted to prove that there was something to make to do and that there was a different way of retailing or now with your less than 4,000 Swiss franc tourbillon wanted to prove as well that it was possible to do a Swiss, Swiss 
made tourbillon for that price what 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 is the reason of launching yourself into that business now as a, a new company well as i said um the first idea was not to launch a brand uh in fact i was teaching uh in mbas uh teaching distribution i created my own academy which is called the watch trade academy where i'm teaching international distribution funnily Uh, you can learn anything at university that spends money, marketing, production, HR, whatever, whatever you want. But the only thing that brings in the money, which is the distribution, nobody teaches it. So I decided to, to teach that. <clears throat> and, and I came to the conclusion exactly like Ben did, uh, that ultimately what counts is the public. You know, in any case, the distribution is built... On a, on a linear line where you have the brand, the intermediaries, and in the end, you have the end consumer. That's why we call him or her the end consumer. It's a linear approach. And that public, that person who purchased the watch pays for everyone. He, she pays the bill of everyone. So of course, the closer you get to that person, the more important and the more relevant it is. And this is why many times, as you correctly said, Ben, Brands are disconnected from the public because the public of the brands are not the end consumers. Ultimately, they are, but the public, my job for 15 years was not to sell to an end consumer. I remember I was once in the Middle East, I think in Bahrain, and I was in a point of, I happened to be in a point of sales where there was a customer in front of my <clears throat> window of the brand and looking for my brand. So I was so excited that I woke up to him and I said, ah, you, you're interested in my brand. Uh, Uh, why Why do you like it, which model? And I started to make the, the sales job. I was so excited and I thought, look, it's my customer. And after 15 minutes, the guy walked away, he didn't buy the watch. And I saw the, the retailer was really, sorry to say, pissed off. He said, with which right are you speaking to my customer? And I said, look, it's my customer too. He said, no, I'm. he's not your customer. Mm -hmm. Your customer is a distributor who is right standing next to me. I'm the customer of the distributor and that client was mine. You have no right to speak to him or her. And that's exactly, the, that's exactly this. Uh, the, the industry is based on, on, on a historical century-old way of selling, which puts a lot of distance between brands and, and consumer. So my understanding was that we are going through a major disruption. You know, the, the, the digital disruption is very much acknowledged into the marketing, but nobody really understood what it means to distribution. Think about the Panama Canal. What does the Panama Canal means to ship before 1914? They had to go, when they want to go from Louisiana to San Francisco, they have to navigate 21,000 kilometers. That's a lot. I don't know in miles how much this is, but that's a lot. And suddenly in 1914, when you can shortcut through the Panama Canal that was open, you save 10,000 kilometers. It's a commercial route, just as digital is to distribution. It's a shorter path linking two oceans. And in our case, it's the brand and the end consumer. So digital is a very short path that can connect finally the brand and the end consumers. Before you had to go down the Magellan Strait or you had to go down all the intermediaries. And My quest was, what's the impact of distribution when it comes to digital? So you have the e-commerce, which is the direct relation of brands selling to end consumers, but that's very suboptimal too. And we'll probably come to that point. Traditional distribution is very good in UX, very, uh, very expensive in margin. Digital distribution is reverse. It's very good in margin, but very poor in UX. 
This is where Odinki comes in the picture because they give a lot of UX, they give a lot of they give a lot of information. So my quest was a middle way, which I meant I didn't invent that name, but still five years I'm using Figital, which is the middle way of connecting the people, having a direct relation, recovering the margins, but still giving an experience. And that uh, that launch um, that lead me to launch that brand just to test. Now the tourbillon is just because I had made a try with the first chapter, then people say, yeah, it's not worth it because it's not Swiss made. Then I came with a Swiss made watch and people say, yeah, but it's too inexpensive. It will never work with high end. So I said, what's high end? People said, it's, you know, it's a tourbillon. So I made a 100% Swiss made tourbillon here from, uh, from Neuchâtel State. And the surprise is that it works with my model, but it costs 4,000 instead of the usual 40 or 100,000. And I'm, I'm, I'm paying very well my contractors. I don't make any difference. It's just that I wanted to prove that today there is another way of selling and that today it's not just about the product, it's about how to sell it. And, and thank you, Thomas. I think we'll deep dive into a bit more about this retail model. And I think between Ben and yourself, there's a lot to explore. If you stay maybe on this on this uh, less than 4,000 Swiss franc tourbillon, which is very uh, Swiss-made tourbillon, which is very unusual, if, of course, in industry, how did the market and how did the clients react to this chapter four? Well, the reaction, first, the public uh, loved it. It sold out. Uh, we, we released 220 for the 220 years of the tourbillon invented by Breguet last year. And that was sold out uh, very straight. And many people wrote to me saying, thank you. I've always dreamed of acquiring a tourbillon, 100% Swiss-made tourbillon. And finally, my dream comes true because it was inaccessible to me. Now, some people... Uh, in the companies, I mean, I have a lot of support, uh, sometimes officially, and here in my office, a lot of people from the industry come and say, thank you, you're doing a lot of good to the industry and showing that there is another way possible. Some other companies are not so happy, let's say, uh, because they have multipliers that are sometimes very high. But again, it's not my, it's not me to explain, it's rather them to explain. But one thing very important, I didn't meant to do this to decredibilize or, or to be compared to anyone. I think it, it, you know, it's not exactly at all, let's say the same business with the top brands you may think about when it comes to a very high-end luxury. It's just another way of doing the business, but still the quality is exactly or at the same level that you can expect from the, from the 40,000. It's just another, let's say another segment. Okay, understood, fully understood, thank you. Um, maybe let's let's explore a bit the, the different retail models and uh, and the digital and the move to 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 digital. I mean, Ben, you started as a fully digital company in the end, and now uh, you announced that you wanted to open a physical store in New York. We see a lot. I mean, like the Amazons and other pure players say, well, at the end, sooner or later, I have to have something physical because I want to have the user experience. As well, I mean, in the watch industry, especially, which is very traditional, we see that the preferred channel currently still with consumers is our brick and mortar stores. So what is your thought about this, uh, this new retail in, in the watch industry? Yeah, no, I, I think I, I think you're probably, um, not probably, I think you are definitely right that I think at scale, the preferred methodology for purchasing a watch is, is physical, but I think that'll change. And I think in particular with, with young American clients, we've seen, I'm using myself as the archetype. I live in New York City. I have access to literally everything at my doorstep. 
And my preference is to buy online. The reason is, is because I already know what I'm buying ahead of time because I'm reading sites like Hodinkee and, and others. Uh, and my time is more valuable than, than anything else. So if I can order it on my phone and have it delivered to my doorstep the very next day, that is actually my preference. However, there are brands out there. Amazon is probably not one of them, but I think there are certain brands out there that have real followings and communities revolving around them. And Hodinkee is certainly one of them. So our store is not at all to open up people, the older folks that, that want to buy physical, it is more to celebrate the community that currently exists in the real world. So we are absolutely a digital brand, but you know, we did a 10th anniversary event that was attended by the CEO of Omega and AP and Langa and Shankla Beaver, et cetera, in 2017, I'm sorry, 2018. And we had 17,000 ticket requests for that. And so it's, and that, that, that was in person in New York. And so it's very clear that people from our world want to get together in person. We do events, you know, COVID not, pre-COVID and now hopefully post-COVID soon enough, we do events all the time. And so the, the physical kind of clubhouse for, for Hodinkee is very much what you'll see in, in the store that's opening later this year. And beyond that, you know, we we kind of, we, we love to pay homage to the brands and the people that came before us. And so in this case, we're taking Supreme Space, which is an iconic fashion brand here in New York, their original home down here on Lafayette Street, right up the road from where I am now. Uh, that will be our, our first brand kind of clubhouse in the world. And we're obviously a New York brand. And so, you know, the New York store is a very important one. It, it is certainly a place where people will, will go to buy watches, but that's not the, the core function of what the, the Hoodie Key store will be. It'll be much more about community, being able to experience our brand and these products in the way that, that some people want to. Um, I, I am completely respectful and understand the need for physical for sure. And I, I would never say otherwise. And as I said, I know several folks that are mega clients of the biggest brands in the world that, that only buy um, in physical stores, but I think oh, you know a lot of times that 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 thinking um, is starting to be outdated because the products that are so desirable don't need anything. They don't need physical or digital, right? I mean, if if somebody said, "Hey, um, uh, Kareen, I'm going to offer you a 5711A from Patek." and where the whole transaction is going to be done over WhatsApp, would you say no? Of course not. You would say yes. You wouldn't care about going to, yeah, exactly. You wouldn't care about the champagne and caviar that comes of with it. You care not. about the watch. I would go for right. it. <laughs> exactly. And so I think that's what we found is that there's, there's a difference between the people that love the luxury of watch buying, which is the champagne, the caviar, the, the fine suits and, and, and accents. And then there are people that love the product. And I think our audience in particular is much more focused on the product. And so if you have the product, whether it comes in a cardboard box or whether it comes in the most beautiful you know, wood panel box uh, with champagne and caviar for free, it doesn't matter. And so our store will, will certainly have the, the niceties of a, of no a great retailer. in the Hodiki store? Uh, we'll have champagne for you. We have champagne for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's 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 more about the experience and more about connecting with people than the than the luxury of it. Okay, fully understood. No, no, I am looking forward to seeing that very soon. Then, and and we we understand as well that I mean, there's a shift from the traditional just I go there to buy and I go mm -hmm. to a shop to live an experience and to exchange and to talk and to have a drink. We see that in the new concept stores that most of the brands are open, opening up. It's a different type of. Um, uh, yeah, of, of buyer experience and exchange of, of information. Absolutely. Um, Thomas, maybe ca can we look into, into your concept? I mean, you, you're using the, the term, which I think is quite interesting, of effluenders, which is the acronym of uh, ambassadors, influencers, and vendors, who are, in fact, your distributors. Huh? And, and, and you're, sorry, you're in direct contact right. and you're saying cutting out the middleman, as you mentioned before. Can you give us a more perspective on, on how you came to this concept and how it works in real life? Well, my, my my idea first was uh, I wanted I was looking for a global solution, 
for the retail and the trade that I know very well. And, uh, and my idea first was how can I disrupt the traditional distribution? And, and basically when you disrupt something, you have to disrupt the cost. The main cost of the traditional distribution is the place, the service and the stock. You need a shop, you need people receiving you in the shop, giving you a full treatment uh, service, explaining you the product and you need the stock physically uh, in the shop to, to make it happen. Um, so the Afflinder concept is based on something where it's not all around the store, which is the point of experience, but then the ultimate goal is to sell you something. It's, uh, it's a customer-centric approach, which we produce these three costs or disrupt these three costs. The point of sales became a risk of sales. So it's the risk of my customers. I don't have, it goes randomly around, but I don't have to pay for it. The, the service, you know, the fact that the watch is 43 millimeter, uh, this website says it very well. What you need to make a, a good sale is the storytelling. And Ben, of course, is a, is a master in this. That's one of the key value they're bringing. Uh, and, and there came the idea of that very strange name. You, you pronounce BA111OD, you can say BA1110D or BAYO. Uh, fact is that I, I was looking for a name that you could not pronounce voluntarily because I knew that th that would be the question that everybody would have when they see my watch on the wrist. What's the brand? So if you can't really answer that question because you don't know the name of the brand you have on your wrist, then you have to explain. And you make the service, you make the storytelling, your storytelling, but ultimately that's that's way more valuable. And finally, the stock, I use the law of trading. A trader that buys 100,000 tons of mice, of corn, will not have it in front of his house. He has a right on it. So I, I use the rights and, and basically it's three years I'm using it. I'm, I'm very much laughing when I hear about NFT because it's exactly this. You don't buy the product, you buy the representation of the product. So I decorrelated the, the sales from the experience. And in my case, the person who buys a watch have the watch and rights to recommend it. It's a recommendation business. And then when you recommend it, you don't sell the product, you just sell the right to purchase it. So I decorrelated the sales and the experience. And I think this is very interesting by solving the, re the retail issue. I'm sorry, it's a bit technical, but the, the, the key issues of the retail today is the price, the, the selective distribution and the showrooming effect. And my system solves these three points. So when you say, for instance, I'm cutting the middleman, I'm not. I have middleman and I'm, doing exactly like Ben, I'm opening stores, I'm opening distribution. My system works with distribution. I just requalify what's, what's really important. It's not the sales in the distribution, it's the experience. And, and my system allows to solve most of the key issues of the retail that, that the retail has today. The fact that you can't trust pricing, the fact that you cannot control your distribution, master the distribution anymore. And the fact that people go to the store to try the product, and buy it online ultimately because they find it cheaper. And this is the, the real problem of the retail. But are your watches, nobody can try on your watch before they buy it? It's purely online? Most of them can, but that's rethinking the way they access to my watch. You have a dinner with friends, you see his wrist, you say, hey, what's the brand? You say, I don't know how to pronounce this. He will explain, he will pass it on to the person in his hand. He will make his storytelling about the brand. And there you have most of, of the experience one person is expecting. And, you know, in my model, the, let's say the traditional model is that 
you don't know the brand, brand don't know the customers. You see only Photoshop pictures on, on window website. And the people speaking about the brand usually are ambassadors or influencers paid to tell you that they love the brand. This is where people turn to blog like, like Hodinki because this is where they get the real information. You can't really trust the information from the brand because it, it's all you know, monitored. And in my case, everybody knows each other. I have an app in my community, BA111OD community. And everybody speaks to each other. Everybody knows each other. They speak to the brand. The picture you see are from my customers. And they are paying me, I say with utmost respect, but they are paying me to speak about my brand and sell it. And I give the ultimate uh, trust that, that the brand can give to the customers. They can speak about my brand and they can sell the brand. No brands let them the customer let the customer do this. So of course, it's putting the customers not on the marketing blah, blah at the center. It's really putting the customers at the center. He or she decides how he or she wants to spread the news and if she wants to uh, sell the watch and have a limited rights of sales to do that. Ben, do you want to react to what you just heard? Yeah, it's, it's, it's super cool. I mean, it's, uh, it's exactly what, what, what the world needs. And I think, you know, th there's been, there's been a few brands in the past that have tried similar things, but never something so kind of coordinated with, with your own app. I think, I think it's great. And I think as, as, as Thomas said, I think, you know, and we were certainly were not the first, but we were kind of among the first to kind of put it out there on, on a blog as opposed to a forum. The idea that like a community member or somebody that's independent is taking photographs of something is dramatically different than the, the way that the, the traditional watch brands have communicated in the past, which was highly edited images to the point where like they don't even look like photographs anymore. They look like paintings or watercolors or drawings. Or and that is not at all. That, that don't even exist. Exactly. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing that, that we saw really open up our door and kind of unlock something special in Hodinki was the wrist shot taken on an iPhone or taken on, you know, a Canon S95, which is a point and shoot camera, which shows you what the watch actually looks like on, you know, my wrist or somebody's wrist, as opposed to these pack shots, as, as Thomas said, that, that may not even exist. And I think, you know, the, the more real any engagement uh, with the brand can be, the better. And I think it's taken, it's taken luxury brands and not only watch brands, but all luxury brands a long time to really understand that. And you also have these mega concentrated communities out there, whether it's a Porsche community or a Birkin bag community or something else, even a coffee community that care a lot more about the product than the people that are actually buying it. And in many cases, these communities aren't buying it, uh, but they're, you know, they might have one, but they care about it in such an enthusiastic way. And the power of, as, as Thomas said in the beginning of the conversation, of, of, of real people, as of the end consumer, I think is really was, was changing you know, distribution and changing what, what people are doing in watches today. Well, if, I, if I may, Ben, in any case, um, social media has changed everything because we are the center of, of, of the attention. We can, we can podcast ourselves. We can, we can access to uh, millions of people. And, and that's mm -hmm. what has changed from the beginning. You're from the press. I came from the press. The message was from one source to, to many. Now it's many to many that people speak. Mm -hmm. So people are willing to meet people from their community and they're willing to touch something real and, and, and walk away from the blah, blah from the master messages that brands start to try to emit. So maybe last question on, on, on this retail model, because um, I mean, before, of course, the wholesale model and with the wholesale model, brands were lacking data and, 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 the, the, and the reaction and the interaction to the real consumer. You speak about your personal interaction to consumers and, and, and talking to them and interacting. How important still is data in your business? Maybe Ben, you want to start? 
Sure. Uh, it, it, it's everything, right? I mean, we, we are a technology company. We're not a watch company. We, we are a company that understands our audience as well as anybody. And I think the companies that we benchmark our, ourselves against, they don't exist in Switzerland. I can promise you that. They don't, they don't exist in Europe. We're looking at Amazon. We're looking at Apple. We're looking at brands that say, hey, we know our consumers so well that we can give them exactly what they want. And so what Hodinkee is able to do, and this is no surprise to anybody, is when you come on our site and you, let's say, uh, Karine, I'll just stick with the theme. You only care about a protect leave. And we can see that if you have an account from your IP address, this, this person is a woman. She only likes Patek Philippe. She might comment only on Patek Philippe and, and Audemars Piguet articles. Uh, she has bought this. She has bought that. She bought a book on Omega, so-and-so. And, you know, we're able to, to then say, okay, these people, this person is interested in X, Y, and Z and not Z, Y, and X. And I think, you know, data and, and the web go hand in hand, obviously. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's not. For us, it, it really comes down to serving people better. And I think what Hodinkee has always been, and as we said, we sell G-Shocks for $50 and we sell Laurent Ferrier's for $50,000. And you know, those are very different mindsets of consumers. But with our, with our platforms, you know, we sell insurance, we have a community platform, we have a commenting system, we, we have a shop, obviously, we sell straps. We have an idea of what our consumers really care about. And I think that is certainly among the most valuable things in, in Hodinki. The reach is wonderful, the influence is wonderful, but the fact that we know our audience so well, and our audience is so different than I think who, who you might assume it is or who um, the traditional watch buyer is, they're so much younger and they're buying and selling watches so much more often. And they care about pre-owned. They, they want to know that they're getting assets instead of liabilities, which is like a totally foreign concept to watches five years ago. And now is everything. That's why Rolex and Sympatics trade. You know, you can't buy them. You can get whatever else you want. Um, you know, so, so data is, is everything. And I think we have a long way to go there, frankly, uh, toward, towards what we think is possible. Um, but, you know, the, the benefit of being online since 2008 and online only really is that, you know, this is, this is, we were, this is part of our DNA. It's, it's part of this brand and always has been. Fascinating. I, I could not agree more to what you just said, Ben. Thomas, do you want to give a, your perspective on data? Well, you know, data, I learned my lesson. Actually, it was in Manhattan. I was doing a market visit and I, uh, and I was visiting a famous retailer there. And he once told me something. It, it, you know, it's not enough to offer coffee to a customer enter the shop. You have to know which coffee, how they like their coffee. And that's exactly this. If you know that, you know, in Starbucks, you have specialities that, you know, here in Europe, maybe it's, we have two, three kinds of coffee. You have a lot of ways to drink your coffee in the US. And if you know what the customer really likes, then of course you establish a trust, trustful relation. And this is, I'm, 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 I mean, I couldn't agree more with Ben. Datas are keys. Now, how do you get those data? That's exactly the problem the industry has because they have subcontracted they have uh, led the responsibility of selling to the end consumers to intermediaries. Again, I had data when I was in brand, but I, that was the data of my distributors. I had 150 of them. I knew their birthday, the name, the name of the wife, but that were, those were my customers. Mm -hmm. But brands ignore or this, this, uh, not, do not know the end consumers. And once you have this, then you touch the real, the, the real people who pays and of course that's the main asset it's very important now in my brand as i said not only we have uh, visibility on them but we have a, a real visibility if you go on our map you can map our customers we don't know where they are now where they go on holiday but where they declare to be and that's amazing because people from small towns they look on the map and they see that someone has my watch and they chat directly and they go for a coffee 
and it's a customer selling to another customer. And that makes the magic because then it's a real sales. You trust someone from your town or your friends, etc. maybe sometimes more than someone from a retail store. And, 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 and this is where the magic happens because that person can make you purchase, allow you to purchase the product. And of course, what I didn't mention when you speak about a tourbillon at 4,000 is that everything I, I take back from the margins may be the distribution because my customers do it or marketing because my customers also do it. I give it back to the end consumers. This is why you get those prices. And this is why by recommending the watch, you don't, you don't just get the watch at a good cost, at a good price, but you can even get a second one for free. Interesting model. There too much to explore here. Um, maybe my next question, I wanted to move back a bit more uh, at, the, at the macroeconomic view. You know, you've, you've gotten the numbers of the Swiss watch industry. Um, Pre-pandemic levels have already been achieved uh, in terms of value. Uh, we're over 22 billion of watch export sales again. Nevertheless, in, in terms of, uh, of volume, we lost 25% of volume. And knowing that um, um, component manufacturers, they rely a lot on the volume. It, it's likely that this volume will not be recouped anymore. I mean, what is your vision for that? And, and Thomas, I see you want to start. Well, yeah, because I think it's very important for the people who listen that when we speak about 25% decrease, it's calculated on 2019, 2020 anyway, doesn't count because it was pandemic. But 2019 was a year where the industry had lost in a single year, 3.5 million watches after seven years where we lost 6 million. So in, in 2011, 2018, we lost 6 million, 2019 alone, 3.5, and then we are 25% done on that year. So it means we lost 5 million. So the, the, the bad thing is that from the, from the value, it seems that everything is fine. But from the volume, we are, we are completely losing ground and abandon the entry and the middle price segment. This is exactly where my theory comes in the picture to find solutions. But yes, it's very worrying because yeah, the value is made by 10% of the volume, the very high end. But what do we do with the 80% of the volume that create the job in the industry? Do we abandon it? We had already that same question in the 80s with the quartz crisis. And what's the solution today? I, I'm offering a solution to the industry, but it's not exactly the same as we had in the 80s. Ben? Yeah, I, I think you're completely right. I mean, I think that there, there's one thing that I just have to point out because it's, it's so funny. You mentioned that 2020 doesn't count. In no other industry does 2020 not count. <laughs> 2020 counted, or when I go to investors, 2020 counted, you know? And it's just amazing that the Swiss watch industry is, oh, forget about that year. It didn't matter. It certainly well, because, did matter. Because and, their export were very bad for you. Of you, course. You know, you were, uh, you were online. So, of course, sure. it has probably been a very good year. No, but I think it, to the it, point, I think I would agree. In, uh, 20 is, was a year. You have to, <laughs> it, it's there, and you have to take it into yeah. account. What, well, what, it was what, a turning point, by the way, yeah. for the industry. Yeah. For sure. Oh, look, so, I, I think 2020 was a really formative year because it, the, the things that companies like Kodinki and like yours were, were already doing, which was you know focusing on consumers, focusing online, it, it just made all that happen faster. So I think it was a really great transformative year. But I just am amused when when people say that year didn't count. Uh, a lot happened that year. But at least they, they don't they don't take the base of comparison. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think I, I think you're completely right. I think like the the thing that I'm most concerned about as a consumer and as somebody who loves watches is exactly what you said. We're forgetting about this middle market luxury product, and I think like that is ultimately when you look at what you know. Audemars Piguet ten years ago 
was a really cult brand that was expensive and special and rare. And now everybody knows what a Royal Oak is, which is fine. That's great. But that is, it almost has become, really Rolex has become the bare minimum of what people, at least in, 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 in New York, which is a market that I know, you know very well, really want as a luxury item. Whereas, you know, when I was growing up, it was Tag Boyer, it was a Cartier uh, tank. It was things that were like in the two to three to $4,000 range. And now it's like, if it's not a Rolex or at minimum an Omega, then people don't want it. And I think, you know, a Apple Watch and smart watches have a big, big role in that for sure. And I think, um, you know, th there's a lot of stuff that that has to change. And what what I love seeing is, is brands such as Thomas's for sure. Also other micro brands in the US um, that are, are generally made in Asia, to be honest with you, um, but, you know, uh, designed in New York and Chicago, et cetera, um, doing products in that range that are really compelling. And I think, you know, there are certain brands like Longines, we did a limited edition with them that, that that did really well, Nomos. There are certain brands that still do well in that price range, but I think you're right. Like those, that is really what the Swiss watch industry is. It's not all complications from Audemars Piguet and Patek and Nanlanga, et cetera. So I think you're completely right there. Well, and, and not only, you know, it questions the fact that how can we continue here, what I'm speaking today from Neuchâtel, uh, how do we give work to the, to the companies closing because there is less volume, but how do we bring the people to the to the to the Swiss watch fine industry, because you you don't really start usually with a ten thousand one hundred thousand watch dollar watch. You start with a five hundred, then you go to one thousand five hundred. It's a step, you know, it's stairs. So if you cut the first steps of the stairs, people can't access. So I think it's wrong to abandon those segments, and I think it's very important to find clear solutions. How do we bring back the interest? In that segment, what do you get today for $500? Usually people say, let me get an Apple Watch because it, it, it gives a lot. My answer is let's give them a very beautiful Swiss-made skeleton for $500. I can do it. No other brands can do it at that price. And I assure you it's Swiss-made. Why? Because, and that's very important, I'm not rethinking the way to how to produce watches, which is what we're very good at in Switzerland. I'm rethinking the way how to sell them. Because the, the biggest part of margin is in the distribution. It's not in the, in the production. And I mean, I think I, I fully agree. I mean, you, you don't start with the luxury watch usually right away. And there is always a first step. But now there's everybody another... earns $100,000 a month. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a, that's a don't that's forget, fact that we don't can... Don't forget 98% of the population. That we can confirm. No, what I, what I wanted to explore, maybe if, um, if, you, if you can continue that, in that route, is the pre-owned markets. I mean, uh, we speak about auctions and pre-owned, and, and, and Ben, you invested in Chrono Caliber. Is the pre-owned market maybe, I mean, we see that it grows exponentially to, uh, versus the primary market. Is that maybe the first step as well, now that people want this high-end luxury at a, at a more reasonable price and to enter into the market? Well, I mean, it, it, in in theory, sure, but I I, I think what, what you have to I mean, you I'll I'll say something that everybody here already knows is that if you buy a Daytona new, it's thirteen thousand dollars. If you buy it secondhand, it's thirty five thousand dollars, right? So so pre owned doesn't necessarily mean cheaper. I think historically speaking, it, it it does, but no longer are you know at least from the big brands to, to, does that compute? I will say what was so compelling when we purchased Crown and Caliber about a year ago right now is that they had an amazing business in the market away from Rolex, right? And I think anybody can sell Rolex. If, if the three of us on this call got together and had a, a briefcase full of Rolexes, went out to the corner where I am here in Soho and opened it up, we could sell them all in an hour, 
No question about it. It's not difficult to sell Rolex. It is difficult to sell anything else, at least in the United States. The US is dominated by Rolex, 50% or more of, of luxury watches sold in this country are Rolex. And so what was so compelling about the Crown and Caliber business is that they had built a $50 million business a year not selling Rolex. And they could easily, the margins are thinner, but you know, you know, it's guaranteed transaction, whatever. Um, they had built a business that was not dedicated to Rolex. And I would challenge any of our, our kind of, you know, you know, friendly competitors out there that are in the pre-owned space to be as reliant or as least reliant as us on Rolex as, as anybody. Um, and I think what's so amazing about pre-owned is the opportunity to get into other brands for less. So moving, you know, Rolex, Patek, AP, et cetera, there, there's no question that that pre-owned is, is, is the future. And I think this is not, you know, this is not revelatory. This is not like we've recreated anything here. If you look at fashion, if you look at cars, there's a, a story that I've been telling for years and it remains true is there's a, there's a Ferrari dealer here in Midtown Manhattan, Ferrari of Manhattan, you know, obviously a very high-end dealer. They sell more certified pre-owned Ferraris every year than new Ferraris by a factor of three to one. And that, that fact has remained true for the past five years. Again, we're not reinventing anything. And I think oftentimes it, it feels like some folks think that, 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 that the Swiss are going, that the, the industry is going through things for the first time. Cars have been through this, fashion's been through this, jewelry's been through this, like the writing's on the wall, what's gonna happen? Pre-owned and re-commerce as, as we call it, is the future of everything. And so, you know, what, you know, removing the Rolexes and the Daytonas and the Paddocks, et cetera, it is absolutely the future because no matter how wealthy you are, if you spend a, a million dollars on a watch and you wanna, you wanna buy another watch, odds are you might wanna sell the other one. And I think it just makes sense. And I think this idea that, that pre-owned and re-commerce is a bad thing is, is totally passe, of course. I mean, now we see brands investing it in themselves. Obviously, Watchfinder was acquired by Richemont. Um, and it, it's just the future. I mean, this is, this is the reality that, that other segments have been living with for, for you know, decades at this point. So it, it just we saw the writing on the wall in that regard. Yes. Thomas? I agree. And, and again, you know, I, I don't only see things how they are. I always try to understand why they're like this. And, and, and in that case, as uh, Ben correctly said, Swiss brands are starting to embrace pre-owned. But the question is, why haven't they before? You know, when something happens or something doesn't happen, it's never a coincidence. And if brands did not embrace uh, re-commerce, are very much like this, uh, I, I call my... Uh, my uh, concept, WeCommerce, which is very close to yours. <laughs> um, if brands didn't do it before, it's because it was not their business model. I'm not selling. Uh, 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 I have no interest as a watch representative in distribution to sell a watch that has been already sold. I have to sell new watches. So the, the, the business model of brands was to sell new watches, palettes of new watches, not recycle them. And, and, I, and I see here something very funny uh, happening and, and why is pre-commerce is, is pre-owned so, so important, so hot today? Because it first started as a major threat to the brand, a systemic threat. Because the fact, the peer-to-peer -peer tendons, the fact that people, individuals could start to exchange between themselves started to do something terrific for brands is that it started to decorrelate the price and the value. The price is what brands think you should pay to acquire their watch. The value is what the customer is ready to pay. But when people are selling watches to, to each other, then they sell it not based on the price. They sell it on the value. And, and that value became visible. And when it comes visible, then it, make, it creates something terrific. Why? Because imagine 
in, in, in Bucherer in, in Geneva, you have a store and on the fourth floor, you have the pre-owned floor. So imagine you buy a Rolex, you take the elevator, you go up and you earn $20,000, as Ben said. Imagine you buy another brand, we're not mentioned here, but there are a lot of them out of there. And you take the elevator, you, you reach the fourth floor and you lost 30%. So what, what, what would that mean when you're in a dinner with friends? Your friend on the left has a Rolex. You say, wow, you're so lucky. Apparently, everybody wants it because everybody's ready to pay twice the price. But you on the right side with the brand Y, then uh, you're very unlucky because apparently nobody wants your brand because you lost 30 or 50%. So desirability is not there. And, 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 and the desirability of the brands became public because of Cron and Caliber, because of Watchfinders, that it's not a coincidence that that Richemont yeah. purchased Watchfinder. So it became a systemic threat to brands because it's the standard and poor of the watch industry. They come to rate the desirability of the watches. So you see a lot of auctions now, and brands insisting a lot on auctions. Why? Because auctions is the new way to say, look, my brand. My watch sold three times the price. It means that it's desirable. And, and luxury is about desirability. And, and it's about, unfortunately now, about an investment. I remember I was animating a, a conference here uh, in, in La Chaux-de-Fonds. We had a very famous retailer from Geneva. And he said, I stopped my activities in 2017. My last watch as I sold was Grobel Forcet. Took two minutes. The guy came in the store and said, how much is it? How much can I resell it? no interest in the product itself. Mm -hmm. and, and, and today, because with the pandemic, many people stayed home, they started to use watches as a trading commodity. And, and, and that's very sad because most of the time today, people are not buying the product for the sake of it, but just for the resale of, resell of it. How, how much can you resell? So the, the whole, this whole pre-owned is, you know, is now embraced by brands because they had to. Mm -hmm. Because it says so much about desirability and because people, individuals can make a lot of money, flippers, they buy, they resell, they make money just as any other commodities. And that's, I think that's a big threat. That, that, that could be a side effect as well, Thomas. But I think, Ben, to your point earlier, there is more and more watch lovers and using blogs and, 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 uh, and the activities that you do to make more people love the watch hopefully brings more people into the watch industry rather than just making it a, a business. I, th I think in a perfect world, I, I think Thomas is completely correct in, in every way, to be clear. Um, yeah, I think in a perfect world that, that you know, the, the, the way that, that we think about things and everything we sell, it's assets versus liabilities. You, I mean, as, as Thomas correctly said, you have a Rolex, you paid five grand for it. It's an asset because it's worth that or more. If you buy a, whatever you want to say, and you pay five grand, it's worth three. That's a liability. You now have debt on that effectively. Uh, and I, I think that is, that is what, as Thomas correctly says, is, is what's driving pre-owned. That's not at all what we try to focus on. And it's not at all what I think is exciting about watches or why I think any of us here probably got into watches, but that is reality. And I think, you know, more people are, are paying attention to watches because of it. Is it good or bad? Who knows? I mean, talk to contemporary art collectors 20 years ago, talk to vintage Ferrari collectors 20 years ago. Did they, did they care more about their cars then versus now when it was worth a million versus 20 million? Who knows? Um, you know, it's, it's good for the industry to have this interest for sure. It's bad when the power sits with, you know, a very, very few brands. And I think that's the scary thing that we have to, to, to deal with now. Um, and I think, you know, I think we try to support 
I mean, look, we work with great brands, very big brands, and we, of course, work with Rolex and Patek on the on the editorial side because they're it's newsworthy. Um, but I think it's important to remember that you know that there are other brands outside, kind of like the big three or four that that dominate the resale value. Mm. And maybe a last question I'd like to ask, because of course, um, Ben, you're joining us from Soho. Uh, similar to some, a lot of people focusing on the same brands, a lot of brands mm. have been focusing on, on, on the East and, and China in particular, because we know that the Chinese consum luxury consumer is so important. They haven't traveled during the pandemic, so there was a lot of focus on, on greater China. Mm -hmm. You still prove that it's possible as well to make good watch business in the US. What is the trick? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's a, it's a, look, we're, we're like children over here. We're, we're like, we're in, we're in kindergarten. You guys have your master's degree from, from Harvard or Cambridge or, you know, insert, you know, a, a fancy, impressive European university. Americans have no clue what luxury is. I mean, really no clue. If, if you think, if you say, what's a luxury watch to say Rolex, because they saw it in a movie, you know, they knew that Paul Newman had one, whatever. And so I think, you know, that, that worked to our advantage. And, and, and to be clear, I didn't grow up in a, in a house that was luxurious at all. Both my parents were teachers. I mean, it, you know, they, my, my, my father's a Rolex now, I think simply be in, in homage to me and my career. Um, but I, I think, The U.S. is incredibly uh, consistent. You know, it, it's an incredibly stable, upward-trending economy. Uh, it is um, it is diverse. So it's not like okay, you know, I mean, we we have Chinese consumers here, we have Asian consumers here, we have European consumers here. It is different than than other markets in that like trends don't matter as as much because there are so many different things. If you go to New York and then you go to Cleveland. And then you go to Minnesota, you're talking totally different, diametrically opposing mental processes. If you go to the North versus the South, I mean, if you go, frankly, to, to, to New York versus Georgia, where our other offices, I mean, really different worlds. And so you, you're able to have microcosms, micro communities in the U.S. in a way that other countries, you know, wouldn't wouldn't allow for. But I think, you know, what has allowed Hodinkee to succeed, and I, I can't say this is true for, for other folks in the U.S., although it might be, is that it's enthusiast based. This isn't luxury based. And so I think, you know, when you're talking about the, the Chinese consumer of 10 years ago, where people would just spend and spend and spend simply for the sake of spending, that never really existed in the United States at scale with American domestic consumers. What it makes Hodinkee and other sites like Hodinkee and other magazines like Hodinkee valuable and interesting is that it's not about the luxury at all. It's about the community. And it is about the idea that like, if there is a World War III, which frankly, is entirely possible, seeming, you know, based on what's going on today, that there will still be people in New York and, and the hoodie community that will care about watches. And the people that are buying watches for luxury's sake will drop them like that. They'll sell them and they'll cash out and, that, and that'll be that and they'll move on to something else next time around. And so I think What has been so wonderful for Hodinkee is getting people into watches for the first time ever. Whereas, you know, you, you guys are so much more advanced than we are in terms of appreciation of these things. I think many of you, certainly in Switzerland, grew up around luxury products, grew up around luxury watches. In 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 the US, we're really the first experience for many of these guys and gals that are that are around them for the first time. So you see that sparkle in their eye, you see that the joy and excitement of seeing a a Daytona for the first time or a Royal Oak for the first time. And it really becomes a very special moment. And so, you know, the, the U.S. is a very stable, stable, large uh, audience. Look, we're not the first people to say that. We've seen massive, massive uh, investments in the U.S. from Washington, Switzerland, from now Booker when they purchased Tourneau. Uh, other giant international retailers are coming to the U.S. very soon. Um, so we're not alone in, in thinking that the U.S. Is, is, you know, is a bright, consistent future for, for, for luxury. But it's, it's about being so underdeveloped, frankly. And it's about being stable because what you see, what you saw in the, in the watch industry in 2012, 
Xi Jinping declared an anti-corruption law. And from one day to the other, everybody buying luxury watches to, to give it to friends for corruption stopped. And the industry faced a huge issue, whereas the US is a very stable market. And, and definitely people are watch lovers. And when you break through in the US, you can make, uh, you can, I mean, the, the, the numbers are huge because you, you guys are 320 million, 350 million. I mean, that's, that's nearly the population of, of all Europe. So it's a lot. For my brand, for instance, I'm, I'm just selling in the Swiss French part in the Watch Valley, my brand for the moment. I couldn't really plug it to other markets. I'm not, I'm linearly avoiding because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't cope with my brand entering the US and the demand I could have in the US. We're trying to avoid so far spreading so much into those markets. We focus on Switzerland where we have a huge, uh, a huge uh, visibility. Superb. This closes our podcast for today. Yeah, a huge thank you huh, to, to both of you, Ben and Thomas, for the conversation. I thought it was fascinating. And you can feel the passion that you have for the watch industry, uh, the understanding that you have of the watch industry having been around. And I hope that uh, our audience uh, really wants to understand more and try out a watch maybe that is not only the big ones and 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 the new a new watch and a new small um, industry a small company that is opening up and we'll listen into hunting key to understand more thanks a lot it was really interesting and um speak to you soon stay well thanks Karen. thank you guys so much have a great day bye-bye thank you for listening to luxury on air with kareen sagetti and felicitas morhart this podcast is provided to you by Deloitte Switzerland and the Swiss Center for Luxury Research. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a five-star review. If you're keen to stay up to date on what's trending in the luxury industry, don't forget to subscribe. As always, you can find more information about the current episode in the show notes. We wish you all the best. Until next time.